When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello, I'm Chris Wynn. And welcome to an extremely special edition of Roker Report, where today we are talking to a man who, in my eyes, saved the club from dropping like a stone through the lower leagues as we were relegated to the third tier of English football for the first time in the club's history. He took the club by the scruff of the neck and dragged us back, kicking and screaming, to the first division after taking charge in 1987. Today I am privileged to be speaking to none other than Dennis Smith. Welcome, Dennis. Thank you, Chris. Good build up, hopefully. I can carry on. <laughs> well, I, I think it's I think it's more than warranted. First, I mean, I just wanted to start off. I read in the Stoke Sentinel that last month uh, you were feeling all well, and you suspected you might have actually kind of picked up an early form of the coronavirus in York. So I, I hope you're well now. I'm fine. It lasted two or three weeks. It was not pleasant. It was something I picked up while I was York City was my first club in management, and they were closing the old ground and opening the new ground and they were having a function and York was one of the first places to have it and I was there with my eldest son who lives in York and uh, both of us went down with a very nasty bug whatever it was and it knocked us about for a bit for two or three weeks so it could have been but we haven't been tested so we don't know. Well, it's great to speak to you, and it's great that you're, you're sounding so well. As you said, you were you were going to um, York City for the opening of the new ground. I mean, in terms of Sunderland, do you, do you get much of a chance to visit the stadium alight? Have you been recently? Uh, I was there last season. I tend to perhaps try and do one at least once a season if I can, and uh, always get a good reception. And I, I had great times up there. I've still got friends up there and try to visit those whenever possible, so... It was a very good time of our lives, and we really enjoyed our time. Myself and Kate and the family enjoyed our, our time up there. Yeah, and we'll, we'll get through that because um, I'm desperate to get on to the Sunderland part of your career. <laughs> but um, of course, I mean, we're, we're going to have some, well, hopefully, we're going to have some young listeners or younger listeners, in fact. So I wanted to touch quickly on your playing career because it was a fantastic playing career. 12 years as a professional with almost 500 appearances for Stoke City. You won a League Cup, two FA Cup semi finals. Two successive fifth place finishes in Division One. I. I mean that that's impressive enough. But I'm just trying to imagine the career you might have had without all the injuries you suffered. I think I would have got England caps. Uh, Alf Ramsey, who was the England manager at that time, did my testimonial dinner, and one of the things he said at the testimonial dinner was every time he, he came on the phone to Stoke for pick me for an England squad, I was injured. So 
Mm. Uh, I did pick up a few injuries in my time. Was that the one that got away, the England cap? Yeah, that was just... I played for the English League, but I didn't manage an England cap, which was... Yeah, uh, I I think possibly if I'd have moved, I might have got it. And Man United came in for me and not Forest Cluffy spent more time talking to my wife than I did at that time. <laughs> they get me go there. And I actually was a great team of the 70s. We played them in Europe and I had good performances. They tried to come in and get me, but Stoke were very reluctant to, to let me go. And I was a Stoke lad and stayed. But uh, yeah. those things, that's in the past. And you, you've got to enjoy what you did. And I really enjoyed my time playing-wise, except yeah. for the injuries, which... Uh, most people know quite a lot. Yeah, and didn't didn't Leeds United offer a world record bid for a defender at the time? If I call him, they did. Don Revy, uh, the Leeds manager. They they were the best team around at that time, and Don came in for me. But again, it was turned down. He made a world record bid for a central defender. Yeah. Mm. Uh, Stoke was not interested in the least in selling me. I mean, to say I, I got invited to Bobby Charlton's testimonial dinner. Thought, why are they inviting me? And I get there, and I've got Bobby on one side and Paddy Crandon on the other, with the arms around me, saying, "Are you happy at Stoke?" Then, <laughs> so I had a great career at Stoke. We were a top six side back then, and yeah, it was it was enjoyable enjoyable times. Yeah, fantastic career at Stoke, and then you end your well your playing career, and you take on the role of player manager at York City after a loan spell as a player the previous season and you spend five years at York with Viv Busby as your assistant. You gain promotion to Division 4 and you have some fantastic days in the FA Cup as well. I mean, did, did you see that as an essential part of your apprenticeship as a manager to drop down to kind of the lower leagues? Because I'm not sure if there's many players willing to do that now. Wouldn't do it. I mean, I used to live quite close to where I would Kendall at that time and uh, myself and Howard would stop for a pint after training and discuss how next moves into both of us were into coaching and management and we would decide where we were going to go and what we thought we should do. Howard went to Blackburn, I finished up at York. I think Howard got the better of the deal at that time. But once I'd, I went to York as a player on loan just to have a look at them and once I got there and looked what the setup was, the board and the players they got, I thought they got a chance. So... Uh, I took a gamble and went, and it, it paid off. I mean, we were the first club ever to get over 100 points, which yeah. is something that, in a quiz, very few people would get right. Yeah, and then we'll go straight into the, the summer of 1987. You're on holiday in Magaluf, and you get word that you're in the frame for, for the Sunderland job, as we've been uh, relegated to Division 3 for the first time in our history. And uh, as, as you put it before, you know, you've been shown around Roker Park. I mean, were you sold on taking the job at that point or did it take some persuasion to take it on? Well, what what was happening was Stoke were coming in for me just before I went to Magaluf with the lads. And uh, unfortunately, for the chairman at that time died. So that put them on the back foot. And the next thing I hear, Sunderland are coming in for me. So, yeah, through... At that time, he came through newspaper reporters. They phoned him in and said, start great. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> the opportunity is taking Sunderland. Sunderland is a massive football club. People within the game, I think at times people living in Sunderland don't realise what a great football club it is, what history it's got. And, and at that time, I thought, if they have that opportunity, who would turn it down? Yeah, to actually get the job, you had to strike a financial deal with Bob Murray to get out of your city. <laughs> 
Bob was an extreme, as you've seen, Bob's a very good businessman. I've got a car with the club with, with York. Couldn't get a car. I had to sort out a deal for the car. York wanted to be paid a transfer fee. Bob didn't want to pay it. So it was only 20 grand. One, yeah. But Bob didn't want to pay it. So I had to have a discussion with him on that. Salary-wise, he wouldn't offer me any more than I was on it, York as well. So, which is, yeah, when you consider the size of the two clubs, it's amazing. But he knew I wanted to cut. He knew what an opportunity it was for me. So uh, I did a deal with him that said, okay, if we get promotion in the first year, you will pay the extra 10 grand for me transfer fee. If not, I'll pay it. So when we moved up to Sunderland, up to Durham, I told Kate to take an extra 10 grand out on the mortgage <laughs> just in case we didn't get promotion. But it's Sunderland out of that division. You've got to be able to believe that you can do it. And fortunately, I didn't have to pay that 10,000. Kate still talks to me. <laughs> Well, I mean, as you said, you had to have that belief. But I mean, as you walk through the front doors at Sunderland, what what type of club did you did you walk into back then? A club with a lot of players, a lot of names, and everybody with the chin on the floor, from the cleaning lady to, to everybody was walking around as though the world's had ending. And I'm thinking, whoa, what's going on here? You know, that this is a massive football club. Don't they realise what they've got? how privileged they are to be here and how can we get it up and running again? It was it, it was a problem at first. Everybody was expecting to go down again. And I couldn't believe that. I mean, I'm thinking we you know, automatic promotion and everybody else within the club who'd been there thought the players and everything that was that bad. We'd go down again. But when you started to look at the players we've got, we've got a, a fair few decent players within an assorted bunch. Yeah. And that, that was just, I mean, changing the mindset was that, did, did you realise straight away that was going to be, you know, the first job that you had to pick up? Yeah, I mean, I'm a positive person anyway, which it goes, but Viv is as well. Viv, Viv was, is, is a bubbly and natural communicator. So with, between the both, I was really going, okay, what can we do? How can we get everybody believing? I mean, one of the first things was the media, because Laurie had banned all the media. <laughs> I opened up the door to all of them. Because yeah. to get it right, it's free advertising. So we had to go and get the media back on side. Yeah. And you know, it, it was two press conferences a day, every day. <laughs> yeah, it was so fascinating, from... interesting. I thought it was brilliant. And well, immediately you go to work on that and start adding some uh, characters to the squad. Um, so straight away you, you added uh, John Kay and John McPhail, who were characters in the summer. But we didn't get off to the best of starts, really, as, as we won three of the first nine. And then we were 12th towards the end of September. You People were panicked. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, well, I mean, was that panic stations at that point? Not from our point of view, because we were looking, we were behind the scenes looking at what was happening and how things were developing. And we were thinking, yeah, things are starting to come together. We're getting a, a good bonding here now. Mm. People are starting to understand what we wanted. And no, we weren't panicking, but you know what it's like up there, the media. You've <laughs> got to sell it to them. So that was my job every day. My job was to sell it to the media, keep the board off our backs, and then get on with the coaching and getting the best out of a, a decent squad of players. But, I, I mean, I'd worked with Monty before, John McPhail at, at York. John Kay was a total one-off, but I'd heard <laughs> good things about him as far as his playing side. Off the field, he's a total nutter. Still possibly is. 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, and, and around that time as well, you you go and raid your own club by yeah, signing a young 19-year-old by the name of Marco Gabardini. But also at the same time, you know, and we'll never know whether it worked out anyway because um, Keith Bertram is a very good player, but he picked up an injury and you, you end up combining Marco with Eric Gates. And then we go on to win the next six in a row, never really looked back winning the third division title. But was it was it just getting those two up top that really changed things that season? Yeah, once I mean, the more I worked with Gatesy, when I first went in, Gatesy was flat as anything, as long with a lot of players who'd come in, at, you know, under under Laurie. And you know, I, I used to have conversations with him, sit down with him, say, you know, what do you want to do? And then you watched him in training, and you're thinking wow, this kid can play. And the more you got into that, and then it was a matter of where do you fit him in? How do I get him into the side? Defensively, you know, Gates is not a great defender. So you've got to get the balance right. Uh, Birch was doing a reasonable job for me, but then you know, he gets injured and I look at Gates and say, can you play up there? And he's gone, yeah. I said, well, okay, what do you want to do? He says, Gates into my feet and I'll destroy teams. So I said, well, okay, we'll Gates into your feet. And he did. Yeah, just Gabba's got on his on his bike in between full backs and centre defenders and Gates he picked it up in those little holes. He got kicked all over the place. <laughs> but it's a brave little so and so and could play great balls through. So Gates and Gabbiadini was a great partnership which takes some some beating. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, while we're on the subject of, of Marco Gabardini, I mean, just pause for a second just to talk about him because, I mean, every I think everyone who saw him in a Sunderland strip saw, I mean, uh, even, you know, 19, 20, 21-year-olds, you know, then in Division 1, huge player with, with potential. But, I mean, looking back now, you know, seeing his whole career mapped out, do you think he fell short of where his potential might have taken him? Um, because, I mean, at the time, you would, I mean, a few years later than this, but you were taking questions on whether or not he should be in the fun, full England squad at one point. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, the kid was devastating. Marco, from 14, 15, when I first had him at York, you're looking and going, wow, power, pace, finishing. And he was, he's one of, I love I love goal scorers. I think goal scorers make jobs a hell of a lot easier than managers. So if you've got somebody like Marco, who if he misses a chance, just goes back and gets the next one. He doesn't worry about the one he's missed. And he keeps getting in there and keeps getting in there. And he's finishing his power and his presence was something awesome. So I was delighted to be, I played him at 16 at York in the team. And then he, he, he signed him at Sunderland at 18. And it was never a gamble. People were looking at he's buying a youngster from, from York. But he proved what he could do. I, I was very reluctant when he went. I didn't want to sell him, but I needed to change the team round. And he was the only one who was I was getting any interest in. Yeah, well, actually, there were stories at the time when you brought uh, Marco to the club that I think just before you brought him to Sunderland that you were you were looking at uh, Steve Bull. But I think you were quoted at far too much money for Sunderland, and then and then Marco came in after that. I can't remember that, but if that's what <laughs> you're saying, might happen. Well, you've got a nasty habit to scoring goals, haven't it? Yeah, it's from a newspaper clipping back then, so it could have all been absolute rubbish. So, <laughs> who knows? They're, they're good at making things. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they can they can uh, they can tell a tale. But just from that season, one one game that is often discussed from that season is the is the game at Wigan, um, but not for the football. Bath. The fans up on the corners on. 
on the on the money. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was an experience going down to the third division in, in those days. But um, what one another signing you make that season? But the, there was a tail behind it was uh, transfer deadline day when you signed Colin Pasco, who was who was a fantastic player and one of my favourites at the time. But to get his signature, you had to drive from Sunderland to Swansea to get his signature, and then you had to drive yeah. all the way up to the FA in Lancashire to to seal the deal. Yeah. Preston, yeah, to get it done, things were done the same as they are now. You know, I've been, they've been hard to deal with, to be honest. They were making, they didn't really want to sell him, so I was forcing and forcing. So I said, right, okay. And I think they thought, well, this will put him off because <laughs> he can't do it. So I drove, I did a lot of those silly things in retirement throughout my career. I've got to be honest, traveling around, just I'm prepared to do whatever I think is right for the club. Because I enjoyed, I enjoyed the game, and it is a game. The yeah. management, everything about it, is a game. Well, I'm glad you did, because he was a fantastic player. And then, you know, we we go on to win the third division title and lift the trophy in front of almost thirty thousand after a three-one win against Northampton Town at Rocker Park. I mean, that day that that must have been satisfying to achieve that and take us straight back up in style like that. Yeah, well, the wife was very happy. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean. I'd said all along that this club cannot be in this division. You know, it, it's far too big, far too too good. What you've got to do is then go and prove it. These are things I used to say to the players. It's no good me telling everybody else how good you are. You've got to go out there and prove it. And this is what I want you to do. And we, we constantly work on attitude yeah, and, and working together as a team. And uh, it, it worked, which is pleasing. I mean that the pictures of that day. I mean you you've been carried around Roger Parker. They're absolutely fantastic, and that that takes us into the the following season, which I, actually I'd argue was a you know another fantastic achievement because we consolidated our position in in Division Two, finished eleventh, but we were in the relegation zone in September. Then we flirted with the playoffs around Christmas, and uh, you also bring in uh, the likes of uh, Billy Whitehurst as well. So I mean that season that was interesting. <laughs> I was going to say it was probably a lively dressing room at the time. Yeah, I mean, him and uh, the brain's gone. Norman from from yeah. both worked tremendously well for me. Billy was brilliant on the on the training field and everything else. His lifestyle off it with him and Bolt, um, <laughs> as he possibly weren't yeah. uh, brilliant, but there he was. He was a character. You, you knew what you were going to get every time he went out on the pitch. You always knew with Billy. He, he would close full-backs down. And one stage, I think, with Billy, I was just playing the one up front and he was closing people down, closing full-backs down on his own. And, you know, he did it tremendously well for me. Well, I think they'll have been that scared. I think they'll have just kicked the ball anywhere if they had Billy White. Exactly that's right. <laughs> but you mentioned uh, Tony Norman there. I mean, I think um, for the team that you were building, he was a huge piece of the jigsaw. I mean, how big a signing was Tony Norman for the club that, that year? Tony brought a presence and a calming to the team. He's a calm person off the field, on the field. What you want out of a goalkeeper? Ball comes into the box, Tony comes and collects it. His distribution was good, his kicking was very good. And you always knew where he was going to be and what he was going to do. I was fortunate I'd played with two of the, the world's best in Peter Shilton and Gordon Banks. I mean, Gordon Banks was by far the best goalkeeper I've ever come across. So if you put Tony Norman alongside them you show what sort of standard he was at but he was a very quiet lad and he just got on with his job and he turned up every day trained went home no trouble perfect professional great for a manager 
He was, he was very unlucky to be uh, a Welsh goalkeeper in the era of Neville Southall, I think, as well. He would have gotten a lot more caps. I mean, we, we could have a debate on which were the best of the two. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, like I said, we consolidated our, our place in Division 2. And then ahead of our second season in, in Division 2, uh, we had Paul Hardiman during the summer. And then very early in that season, um, you go out and bring Paul Bracewell on an initial loan deal. That becomes permanent. I mean, again... That was a huge signing for the club, but was it? Do you think it was at that point you thought that promotion was a real possibility in that year? I wanted to bring into the club somebody who knew what it was like to go through that, and I'd worked with Brace at Stoke as young lad. He was in, in the team when I was playing at Stoke, and then he'd gone on to have one things. Now I knew he'd had injuries, and I knew it'd be somebody I could get hold of. So I spoke to him, and yeah, how are you? Yeah, no problems, but. My ankle's a bit of a problem. So I had him up for a medical and uh, the doc said, nah, his, his ankle's shot. I said, but besides his ankle, is he all right? <laughs> the doc said, yeah. I said, well, so I then talked to Brace. Brace, can you do it with the ankle the way it is? He said, yeah. And he did. I mean, he was superb around the dressing room and giving that extra belief into what we wanted to do. He, he was just a total professional. Yeah, I mean... Uh... Just to slot into that midfield at the time, because we had, you know, Gary Hours was in his kind of second or third season of first team football, but he he was still only nineteen twenty. Gordon Armstrong was only twenty twenty one. You brought in Pasco on the left. He was only twenty twenty three, I think twenty four yeah. at the time. And then to put Paul Bracewell into that midfield, and even though he'd had two years out, he was still one of the best. He was probably the best player in the league that year. Oh, I think that he he went on after and played up the road, didn't he? Which was incredible considering the state of his ankle. But that shows the, the standing of the man. You know, he, he it just yeah, I've got a, a bit of a problem with that. But that's let's get on with the job. He was brilliant in the dressing room. Yeah, and I, I mentioned there. I mean, in terms of that that midfield that you were building up and slotting Bracewell in. But it's at this point I want to mention that, you know, in your first two or three years as manager of Sunderland, you've given opportunities to to Gary Hours, Richard Ord, Brian Atkinson, Warren Hawke, Paul Williams, Tony Cullen, Warren Hawke, David Rush. And then the last name on that list is, is, is Kieran Brady. But before we come before we come on to him, I just want to ask if if bringing through young players at Sunderland, because you brought through so many, was a policy that you wanted to push, or was it a necessity because of the size of the squad you had and, and the lack of funds? No, I, I believe in giving people opportunities. I did it at York. I did it at all the clubs I had. After Sunderland, I would put youngsters in if I think they're good enough and give them that opportunity to prove me right or wrong. And, yeah, they were, the names you've just gone through, there was a lot of good players within that. Uh, fan, fantastic players, but not only played... You know, I mean, there's, there's names in there. You're talking Gary Hours, I think, you know, 350 games. Richard Ord, hundreds of games. Brian Atkinson, nearly 200 games. I mean, those players played a lot of games for Sunderland. They weren't just handfuls of games and then disappeared. They were special, you know, they, because they got the club at heart as well. So I didn't have to convince them how good the club was. Whereas players I was bringing in from outside, I had to convince them. Those people on the terraces were having a go at you. Just imagine what they'd be like when they got behind you. <laughs> and, you know, the, the local lads understood that. So I didn't have to ingrain that into them. On the subject of, of Kieran Brady, I mean, it was obviously, it was clear from an early stage how talented he was. But was it, from your point of view, was it a case of just trying to judge when the best time to introduce him was and how much to do that and how much to expose him? Yeah, I mean, the lad's talent was enormous. He should have been 
a top, top player. But unfortunately, he got a side to his nature that, you know, he, he couldn't keep himself on the straight and narrow all the time. And I was trying to do that. I mean, I, I played him the first game, he was brilliant, and left him out the next. People don't realise, I got slaughtered for that. People don't realise that I left him out the next game because he'd been out till after 12 o'clock drinking. <laughs> and, you know, but I didn't tell the media that. I didn't want the lad. So, I mean, I've seen Curran since uh, when I've been up to games. And he, he's apologised to me, but it's just, I just felt, felt it was a shame for somebody with that much talent to waste it, really. Yeah, yeah, that that West Ham game, Aroga Park, still talked about as you know, I think. I think the the kid should have been one of the greats. Yeah, so we go on that season, and and we we end up you know making the playoffs, finishing sixth, and uh, fate fate uh, pits us against Jim Smith's Newcastle United in the semi final, who finished third. Um, and one thing I wouldn't I wouldn't like to imagine the build up if this happened in the modern day. But w- what are your memories of the build up to that first leg at Roker and, and actually the game itself? A massive build up. I mean, it's Newcastle Sunderland. Games don't come big. You know, people are saying Man United, Liverpool, whatever. This is one of the big games within football. It's Celtic Rangers. It's 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 mm-hmm. a bonkers game, <laughs> and those sort of things is what I came into football for to be involved with things like that. And it, it was brilliant. You know, the build-up, everything, every paper, every radio station, television, everybody wanted a piece of you. And do you say I was enjoying it? The answer is yes. Yeah, the game itself, um, when we get there, it's all strong tackles and 100 miles an hour, but not too many chances at either end, one or two half chances. And then it gets to the last minute and uh, we're given a penalty in front of the full end. And yeah. I think most people would have put money on Hardyman to score, I think. I would have done and I don't gamble. <laughs> Fair play, it was a decent save and it's his follow-up which gave me the problems. Yeah, yeah, that, that gave you a selection headache straight away for, the, yeah. for that second leg when Paul Hardyman got sent off for, for trying to put John Burridge into the full end. Picking Budgie in the head wouldn't have made any difference. Uh, yeah, I mean, what, watching the highlights back, he, uh, Burridge definitely wasn't too happy about that. <laughs> but, but I mean, when you speak to, when you hear players' uh, comments in the squad, how they talk afterwards, they all seem to say how confident they were to go and win that second leg. Because, I, I mean, our away form was great that year, but was the mental preparation from your side, your point of view, was that the most important thing for that second leg? Massively important to get them to believe they could go there and win. And there was no reason why they couldn't. The pressure was on Newcastle. It was off us. Everybody was expecting Newcastle to win. So, great from our point of view. Yeah, everybody thinks they're going to win. Let's you go out and prove them wrong. Let's go and enjoy it. And and we could do that, which which is fabulous. You know, that we spoke to them, worked with them and said, OK, this is how we're going to do it. We're going to make it difficult for them. But we've got Gates and Gabardini up front. Yeah, we can beat anybody, basically. You know, you go in a way knowing that you've got the possibility of scoring. What if I, I played Warren Hall, who'd not played that many games, but his work rate, Warren's work rate and attitude was first class. That was that was actually, you've, you've answered that kind of next question, actually, because I was going to say one thing I did want to ask you about that was you threw, you know, Warren Hawke in. He was only 19, and that was only his second start as a professional player and his first it was actually his first start of the season. I mean, what, what was your thinking behind throwing him in for such a huge game? The lad. Talked to the lad. And he was a bright, intelligent kid who knew what he could do and what his strengths were. 
and he knew his job on that day was to work his socks off, close everybody down and give the 100%. I mean, that sounds easy, but to do it with the energy he got was incredible. He worked and worked and worked all over. You know, he, he was out wide, but his, his work rate was imperative to stop them playing. And uh, he closed people down tremendously well for me. So although he was playing wide, his first job basically there was defensive. Worked a treat. Gates gets an early goal and then 85 minutes, Marco puts us two up, but then the Newcastle fans invade. I mean, what were your thoughts at that point when the Newcastle fans started? Get off the pitch as quick as possible. (laughs) (laughs) But I had a chat with the ref and he said, look, you know, we'll get it finished. Don't worry about it. And just went to the dressing room, said, calm down, lads, relax. We're 2-0 up. The referee says it's going to be finished. We're through as long as we keep ourselves sensible. So we kept ourselves nicely worn up, not too much sitting around, get ourselves right, mentally right. And when we went out, just finished it off. Yeah, that was um, George Courtney, wasn't it? Uh, he was a County Durham man. And I think uh, he was the calmest, <laughs> calmest person at St. James's Park that night, I think. Yeah, perhaps a good choice. Yeah. Um, and now, obviously, the playoff final to go up to the top tier, which is now kind of one of the biggest games in football. But that was the first year that it was played as a one-off game at Wembley. I mean, Bob Murray said since that he got a whisper that we were likely to be promoted. I mean, did any of that filter down to you or the squad? Well, there was always rumours that we'd always wondered about Swindon signings and what was going on. And you wondered how they picked up the players they had. So there was a lot of things within football about that at the time. Uh, but we didn't know for definite. Our problem building up to the game, was finding somewhere to train. Because every time we went to the training ground, it was full of people wanting to watch us training. So that was one of the reasons we we uh, went abroad to try and get away from it, from the pressure of it all. Um, I don't think that was now was a good idea, but because it wouldn't happen now, you'd be able to have a secure training ground. We just didn't have a secure training ground. And so that was one of the reasons to go, go away. I mean, Everybody just wanted to be there. It was constant. And I just wanted to take that pressure off the lads the best way I could. So in the end, we went abroad. I think now possibly not a good idea. Yeah, well, on the day against Swindon at Wembley, we didn't really turn up. And we had Tony Norman to thank for keeping the score down. And I also remember Marco being clattered by Colin Calderwood early on. That was the main thing. After about five minutes, Calderwood did his job. Got a pat on the back from his manager. He sorted out Gabba's. And Gabbers yeah. was hobbling really from then on. But, you know, they were the best team on the day. So we have to accept that. We're unfortunate, well, unfortunately for them, unfortunately for us, we still went up. Now, whether it was fortunate, I didn't think we were ready to go up. I've got to be honest. I didn't think that the squad was, was strong enough mm. to go up into the next league. But it was enough going to turn that opportunity down. Yeah, just because I, I remember actually our... our can remember the day I remember being in the living room with with my dad actually, but um, I remember reading it on teletext that we got promoted to the first division. So how did how did you get to find out? I was out shopping with my wife in I think the <laughs> Metro Centre. I found out. <laughs> Newcastle fan ran up and told you, did he? <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, to say was a surprise, I'd be lying. I, I knew things were going on. But I would have thought I would have found out a little, not walking around the metro centre. Did you manage to get together with the staff or the players? Because obviously it's a strange way to be promoted. But did you get a chance to celebrate? No. No. <laughs> 
Yeah, it's kind of a shame that we had happened in that in that respect. Yeah. That, you know, we didn't get a big chance to even there's a city because the the city were kind of it was it was all up after that. If we'd have won the final, you know, then the welcome home would have been second to none. I mean, yeah. the people were brilliant anyway. But yeah, the the whole place had been we got it going, and you know what it's like up there when, when everybody is behind you, and and that's what you felt. You felt as though you know you could I'd go out and be you know. A kid, seven or eight, kicking a ball against the side side of the ground, going, "Why are you playing that system? Don't you think we should push him on a little bit more there?" And go, oh, great, yeah. And then you go into the paper shop and pick up a paper, and the lady selling the paper would go, "I think your centre forward should be dropping a bit deeper." And you know, <laughs> everybody knew the game and talked about the game. It was brilliant. As a football bloke, I'm totally fanatical, as you might notice, mm. about football. So to have everybody in the area. Wanting you to do well, wanted to talk about it. I'm, I'm delighted to talk to anybody about what we were doing. So it's now the summer of 1990. The World Cup in Italy is taking football to another level, and you were preparing Sunderland for the for the first division only three years after taking over in the third division. I mean, did the budget that you were offered for transfers did that suggest that? Uh, I mean, I think you've already mentioned it, but we just weren't ready to support the progress that you were making with the club. No, we weren't. I mean, that's the sale of Gabbers and. Yeah, I mean, we, and Bob was planning for the new stadium as well. Yeah, so there, there was restrictions on on the money. You know, I, you know, I had the opportunity to buy a couple of players, which I did. Um, yeah, and, and Davenport and Ball, uh, Ball is still there, so he wasn't a bad signing. A fantastic signing, um, because I mean, at the time you were one of the most highly rated managers in the country. I mean, in modern times, if you'd done what you did with Sunderland, I think you'd probably you'd be linked with the England job if you if you did that now. But I think could... I was back then, and that was always my ambition. I've got to be honest to hmm. to, to manage England. I obviously never achieved that, but as an Englishman, yeah, that is as high as you can go. And I I enjoyed management. I, I was one of those. A lot of people find it's hard and I thought it was a great better than working for a living uh, but I mean did you have those frustrations that the club weren't matching your ambitions because you, you were desperate to be in the first division you were, you wanted to be England manager you wanted to be the best but the club weren't weren't matching your ambitions I mean how, how frustrating was that at the time well it's, it's frustrating as far as you wanted to spend money but you've got to understand I mean Bob had taken over same, he came at the same time as me just yeah I was his first signing, Bob's first signing. So he he got those ideas, what he wanted, new stadium, and I wanted players, and he wanted new stadium. And yeah, there was disagreements on a few things, but the new stadium's great, isn't it? So mm. it would, and they got there in the end after me, which you, so you know, it's a football club is not about one player, one manager, not even one chairman. It, it, it's about players and fans, and at the time. You know, I wanted to put players on the pitch. Bob wanted to do other things. And, you know, the new stadium said possibly he was right because he got promotion after that under Reedy. Yeah, I mean, but on that, at that time, talking about, you know, World Cup, uh, in Italy, I mean that changed things, and and then you you mentioned one story in your book 
and your book is uh, great by the way and if, if any Sunderland fan hasn't read it yet I suggest you, you get a copy as it's absolutely fascinating but you mentioned a good story about bumping into Sir John Hall who was chairman of Newcastle United and he was explaining to you you were watching a Newcastle reserve game I think at St James's yeah. and he was explaining to you his plans for Newcastle United over the next two or three years and you, you turned around and, and suggested that he couldn't do that because that was against the kind of football league rules and, and he, yeah. he, just, he just turned around to you and said well we'll will change the rules and you you kind of said at this point that you basically realized that football was changing and two years later the Premier League comes along but that was what he was talking about you know, yeah they could change the rules and they did yeah and and do you think I mean we didn't really have the vision to to see that or was it so kind of pie in the sky at the time that we didn't realize how big that change was going to be. I'm sure Bob was on the inside of that. He didn't pass it on to me, but I'm sure he would have known. He's a very astute businessman, uh, and uh, he was possibly thinking he needed that new stadium for that for for that thing for the Premier League and those sort of things. I don't know. We had our discussions, and those sort of things sometimes they go in your favour. I could have gone to Stoke and earned hell of a lot more money, but. I wanted to stay at Sunderland because I was enjoying myself. Yeah, well, as I said, you had restrictions, um, especially on wages that season, and, and you replaced Gates with Davenport and McPhail with Kevin Ball. I mean, two brilliant signings, as we said. I mean, Kevin Ball, obviously, an unbelievable signing, considering the budget you had. I mean, not being fair to Peter, but Peter wasn't my first choice. Peter Davenport wasn't John Byrne. I didn't... Mm. Bernie was my first choice, who I'd worked with before, and unfortunately, between agents... Things got messed up because he was over in France at the time. And uh, I spoke to him after. I've gone, what's going on? He says, well, my agent said you wouldn't offer. I said, right, that's not right. His agent obviously got a better bung from Brighton or wherever. <laughs> Brighton he went, I think. So mm. I wanted Bernie. So, And that's not a slight on Peter Davenport. It's just that I thought Bernie was better. Yeah, and, and he missed out on a, on a season at the Cracker Division 1 as well. Yeah. Yeah. But considering how close we came to actually staying up in the end, I mean, do you think, you know, if you'd been able to keep those two older heads in the squad, that might have made all the difference? Yeah, I think, you know, if I'd have kept uh, Gates and MacPhail into the club playing the odd games and everything, I think we might have had enough to stay up. I let them go. Monty had got a good, could get more money at Hartlepool than I was offering him. And uh, Gatesy. I thought it was time for him to move on. I think I was wrong on in that case, but I hadn't got the money to pay him and bring other people in. So, but I think those two could have played a, a big part in, in the staying up. Yeah, I, I couldn't believe that that uh, fact when you uh, in your book about John McPhail going, going to the fourth division for more money. <laughs> but um, sign of the times, I think. But well, we opened our first division season away to Norwich City, where we were unlucky not to pick up at least a point. And uh, this is followed by Manchester United at home, which is a fantastic introduction um, to First Division football at Roger Park. And we win 2-1 through Gary Bennett making a trademark trip to the other end of the pitch in the last minute. Yeah. What he's doing there, I still don't know. He <laughs> uh, seemed to do that every week. I used to have disagreements with Gary. When, he, when I first came to the club, he didn't play centre-back. I played him right back. I couldn't trust him at centre-back because he disappeared. Yeah, he'd go on his, which the crowd loved, and it used to make me pull my hair out, and that's why I'm getting bald now. <laughs> it's all down to Benno. 
Yeah, the, the, on on YouTube, there's a there's a fantastic review where it shows quite a lot of the goals from the promotion season, and it's amazing the amount of times the ball's played forward, and you see Gary Brennett in the position where Marco should be up front, and he's just suddenly found himself up there. But, see, but, everybody remembers those. I remember the one at Tottenham yeah. when we were winning, and Benno's up on the right wing crossing when. They go down and Lenica scores at the other end. As a manager, I remember that more than him scoring goals. Benno remembers him scoring goals. I remember him being at the wrong end when Gary Lenica's sticking it in the net at the other end of Tottenham. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, just on that point, I mean, we we had a reputation. I mean, we won lots of plaudits in, in the first division. I mean, and even everyone from that time, the feeling was how good the football was. And you had a reputation of playing great football, you know, all throughout your time at, at Sunderland. And that season especially, because, I mean, it, it showed in the fact that we failed to win in 11 games that season where we took the lead. I mean, was that a result of the way you wanted the team to play or was it a sign of how the young the squad was as well? The way the team was set up was set up to attack. Now, whether we could do that at that level... Yeah, I was perhaps a bit naive, but I believed that we could. And I wanted to attack. I wanted to entertain. Yeah, we're an entertainment business, football. I mean, in the end, the best entertainment is winning for fans, and I understand that because I much prefer winning to losing. But getting the balance between one and the other, I wanted to go and believe that we could take take the game to teams and win. And I always believed and play and close closing people down and there are. Yeah, because once Gabbers and Gatesy were out of the game, then you had to drop back because they weren't really that good at closing people down. The one for me as well was um, Derby County away when we were 3 0 up as well. Well, um, yeah. There were so many times that season where you think, you know, if we'd, if we'd held on or managed to get those three points. There was constantly games where you thought, well, Tottenham had mentioned, you know, where we're in the lead, where you think, yeah, and we, we're going well. And we looked comfortable but yeah. didn't make it out the last game at Man City yeah we, we did well but we lost yeah and uh, well even even the, the last home game against Arsenal we, we were unlucky not to not to beat Arsenal who went on to be champions again it comes down to was I right was myself and Viv's mm. attitude right to go and attack these teams and, and, and try and play attractive football or would mm. we have been better being defensive I don't think I'd got the players because I don't. I hadn't bought players who were defensive-minded. I'd always have a defensive midfield player, but generally I built teams to attack. So if I wanted to change the way we played, I would have to assign different types of players. I think, I mean, you, you mentioned that, that day, you know, main road. But I think what happened was, I think, all of the Sunderland fans that season realised, you know, how we, how we tried to play the game. Uh, we had a young squad. And I think uh, all the fans down at Main Road showed their appreciation for, for the efforts on trying to stay up that season. Oh, they were brilliant. I was in tears, I've got to be honest. It, yeah, they were absolutely unbelievable. You know, they were that good. You know, it, it, it brought me to tears. And uh, um, I'm quite happy to, to admit that. that you know, the, the passion that they'd shown was untrue. For a team who just got beat and the, the, the way they, they went about it, so it shows that we've got something going between us to, to try, hopefully, to bring us up the following season. Yeah. I mean, was it the fans' reaction that day that convinced you to stay? Because, again, you were heavily linked with returning to Stoke that summer. Yeah. I got, you know, 
spoken to Peter Coates, who owns Stoke City now in Bet365. Uh, I'd known Peter. I'd started the local radio station. Uh, I was a director of the local radio station while I was still a player at Stoke. With Peter, Peter was the chairman and I was on the board of the, the local radio station, the private radio station we set up together. And so I knew Peter well from that. And, you know, he was the chairman. And I've got to be honest, he offered me more money than I've ever heard since. So I could have been richer, but I was enjoying myself so much at Sunderland. It was very difficult. And again, my wife, who is always instrumental in my moves. She has to, you know, I say, right, I've got this job. She has to sell up the house, move house, buy a new house, move the kids out of school, move them in new schools and things. You know, people don't realise that there's a family going on there. We move, I mean, uh, when we moved to Sunderland, it was straightforward. I was training at Durham. Kate had seen this house not far from Durham, said, do you want to come up and look? So I went up at lunchtime. It was two houses being knocked into one with no interior walls. And I said, no, forget it, no way. Got back to the hotel that night and she says, I bought that house. So <laughs> shows what power I have there. And she was right. It was great when she got it done. Yeah. But it's, uh, you know, but it, we have to work in that way. And, and when I spoke to her about the Stoke one, she knows I'm a Stoke fan. I was brought up in Stoke. I'm a Stoke fan. And she said, you know, Sooner or later, as a manager, you get the sack. Imagine the building enmities there where I grew up chanting Smith out. Mm -hmm. People say that would never happen, but, you know, how that would destroy you. And it possibly would have done. So, you know, there was that. But uh, I would have been a lot richer. Yeah, and I mean, at this point, we're we're back in Division 2 and we're kind of struggling to get going the following season. But but in the summer, you've been unable to actually sign one single player to, to bring into the squad. And in the September, it's decided that the only way you can do this is to raise funds by Salomar Gabardini. I mean, was this something decided between you and the board or did you just, just decide this was your only chance to be able to add to the squad? I, I don't uh, Bob was a big fan of Gabbers. I'm not surprised. You know, so am I. <laughs> but uh, I needed to change things around. Mm-hmm. And selling Gabbers was the only way I, I thought I could do that. I went out, uh, I sold him and, and brought Bernie, John Goodman and, and Tom Rogan. I'm just so, you know, I, I think I'd improved the team, but unfortunately I didn't get time to find out. Crosser did. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, just before that as well, you had a you had a reshuffle in the backroom staff where Viv Busby left and Malcolm Crosby moved up to work with the first team. I mean, do you think that ended up having a bigger impact on the players than, than you anticipated at the time? Well, I think that you know, Viv had got a Good connection. You know, Viv's job, my, I, I have a humour bypass at times when I'm managing. You know, it's not my it's not my job to be a friend of the players. It's my job to make things happen. And it's Viv's job to put his arm around them or whoever's the coach to say, look, you know, he's okay, he's just having a bad day and you know, make things the other side of it. You know, there's, there is always ways and means of, of motivating people and I might, give somebody a rocket and vivid go, yeah, well, he didn't mean it quite that way, but just take it on board, you know, and think about it. So we worked well together. I'd known uh, Malcolm because I brought him to the club from York. I wanted to change the chemistry with the first team to see if that could change. Viv thought I was trying to replace him. That was not right. I wasn't, but he thought I was. So, yeah, and he's always had a strong mind. You want somebody who works alongside you, not to be a nodding dog. 
you want somebody who disagrees with you and then you go away and you think about it and sometimes you go, yeah, you're right, sorry, or no, I'm still going to do it. And so Viv was a strong, strong-minded person, so was Crosser. I need people alongside me who are going to disagree with me. So, you know, unfortunately, Viv wasn't happy about me bringing Crosser on board and it, it, it fell out from there, which was a shame. I've seen Viv since and chatted, but he lives abroad now. So, you know, these things happen within within any business. Yeah, and then, I mean, unfortunately, you, you end up kind of part in company with Sunderland just after uh, Christmas or just before Christmas, I think it was. Um, I mean, from my point, I mean, did this come as a surprise? Because from my point of view, this was your first, this was your first Rocky spell in charge of the club. And it just seemed to be a bit of a knee-jerk reaction that, you know, you're taking us so far so quickly that actually if, if you hadn't get promoted to Division 1 and you were still in Division 2, then it was probably likely you would have held on to your job. So it was just a strange situation. It was. But I think, I don't know, you'd have to ask Bob why, you know, to allow me to bring three players in and then not to see how they developed. It's a strange decision from... But Bob's point of view, Bob, the, Bob was the board, so it would have been Bob's decision. I mean, it worked great for Malcolm. Crosser you know, was coming with me to Bristol. Mm. Yeah, that was all arranged for him to come in, so I didn't take a number two at, at Bristol. And yeah, I was talking to Malcolm near enough every day you know, on the phone about what he was doing, who was playing, who was doing what, and he kept winning. Cup games, you know, he thought, look, I'm only the caretaker. I've, I've got a photograph somewhere with him with, with a broom and a, a brown overall on. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, again, just going back to, to kind of kind of part and company, because, I mean, we've almost been through every single player that you signed for Sunderland. And for four years, it was pretty much the same group of players for, for almost the whole of those four years. I mean... Uh, what you were obviously trying to do was freshen things up and bring a few players in and kind of rejig the squad around. But again, it's just amazing that they gave you the money to do that and then yeah. and you were gone. Yeah, because Don gave me the pace that I thought we were lacking up front. Bernie is a quality player. You know, I'd had him at York and you know, I'd tried to sign him, I said previously, when Peter Davenport came in. And Anton, again, was a character. Uh, and I like people with character who, who, who will give something to the dressing room. And Anton would, would definitely do that. Yeah, and then, as you said, you, you watched Martin Crosby take, take the team. And then um, I think you mentioned, I can't remember where I read it, but I'm sure you said you, you had to go abroad for the final because you, you, couldn't, you couldn't face watching it. I, I didn't fancy being in the country yet. I went on holiday, went abroad. You know, I wished across all the best and then cleared off. Just in case the media wanted to be talking to me or take anything away from Malcolm, because Malcolm had got them there. It was Malcolm's, and you know, which every time I go and visit him, he's got the photograph of him leading out. <laughs> I'm sure he only puts it up on the wall when I go visit him, leading out at Wembley. <laughs> well, I mean, just before that, actually, before the final, I mean, you end up uh, going to Bristol City and you come back to Roker Park in March with Bristol City and you win 3 1. I mean, was that that must have been a strange experience? It would be to win 3 1 with Bristol. I did well. <laughs> and I got yeah. Coley by then. I wouldn't have Coley by then. Yeah, no, and Andy Cole scored the first one. Oh, Coley had, had got Coley. He was on loan. No. Yeah. He would have yeah. come to, to Sunderland because he was on my radar before I went. Because I knew George Graham well at Arsenal, so he was on my radar before I went to Bristol. 
he was on the radar for Sunderland. Wow. So he might have been playing for Sunderland and not Newcastle. Wow. You've you've got me you've got me imagining all sort of scenarios. <laughs> wow, um, but I, I mean, as I said, you went to you went to Bristol City. Do you think the way that uh, Sunderland handled the the compensation package after after you left the club had a long term impact on your career? Because you still had to pay a mortgage, and I think you went ended up accepting the Bristol City job um, that you might have not done otherwise. Really, I think you're right. It's possibly you know, I got. Uh, a lad at Durham School paying for him. I got a mortgage. I got, you know, I, it was not an easy time. So I'd got to make a decision. Uh, I made a decision. I looked at Bristol City and thought, big area, no competition as such around, should be able to get gates in. You looked at it and thought, yeah, what I didn't perhaps work out was the board was basically nobody with any power and they were sort of, supporters getting to and it just didn't work I just couldn't get any anything done I mean I signed Andy Cole for him so that couldn't have been bad so they made plenty of money out of that but it's uh, yeah it was perhaps if I had more time I wouldn't have chosen there because I'd got a good reputation within the game but I, I needed to move uh, but that's in the past that, these things happen within life and if you let it get you down then You'd soon be slitting your throat in our business. Yeah, I mean, I, because I mean, after Bristol City, you you go on to perform miracles for a number of years over two spells at Oxford United, where I think I mean, pretty much at Oxford United, I think you kind of a feeder club for for Martin O'Neill at Leicester because he seemed to take all the Oxford centre offs at one point, didn't he? He, he? he did have a spell of taking players off me. I mean, obviously, Matty was Matty Elliott was mm. a good signing for me. I mean, I, I signed him from from Scunthorpe for next to nothing and then sold him for a lot of money because we were building a new stadium at Oxford and the chairman who was in motor racing, brilliant, fabulous chairman, super bloke, a genius, designed racing car, motor racing cars, biomass, everything, you name it. I think he's possibly the most intelligent bloke I've ever come across and possibly the worst businessman. But, you know, as a bloke to work for, he wanted to do everything and building a new stadium was so... Unfortunately, I had to take. We was in the playoffs in the, in the championship with Oxford when I had to start selling players there, which was disappointing. But I had a good five years there. But I had to sell myself in the end to West Brom because they couldn't pay the salaries, and I was on the board. So I said, "Well, if I can sell myself to West Brom to pay the salaries, yeah. I never yeah. got that money back either." <laughs> and you you were unlucky at West Bromwich Albion. I think you know you you had a couple of good good years there, and I think you were unlucky there. And then you performed even more miracles with with Wrexham, which was the last club uh, you managed. But um, but Sunderland ended up being your only crack at, at the top flight as a as a manager. I mean, do you look back at, at that point? You know, when that was your your only crack at the top flight, where you think you know if we if we just managed to to survive that season. My career could have been totally different now and everything else. Yeah, I, I, I didn't have an agent then. I've never had an agent, but you would have an agent now. All managers have got agents and things would have been different. Then. I wouldn't have had to do things and I possibly would have had a different career. But I, I'm one of only 20 managers who've done over a thousand games. Yeah. So it's been better than working for a living, as I said earlier. <laughs> it, 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 I wouldn't have finished. But Kate, when I left Wrexham and we got out and Wrexham said, that's it. She didn't want 
to go anywhere else. She wanted to stay in Wrexham or said, where else would you? I said, well, we can go back to Stoke because it's left one lad in York, one one lad in Oxford. So I said, we'll be halfway in between the two lads. So we came back to Stoke and you know, it's been great to come back. But uh, I miss management and I, I would have carried on. If it, but you need good support from your wife. And I, I had that all the, throughout my management. So wasn't going to complain when she said, and she said, there's a lot of young managers coming through who need a job. Don't you go taking them. And she was probably right. <laughs> yeah, because I, I think you mentioned in your book, you were approached by, you know, a couple of teams to, to get back into it. But um, I think you mentioned, I think just you didn't get that right offer. But you ended up doing some commentary on uh, on Stoke City games, I think, some radio commentary. Oh, I do radio commentary. I worked, I worked for the Premier League for 10 years as a match delegate, uh, which was quite interesting. And I've been working for the FA for 10 years as well on disciplinary and work, well, work permits as well. So I get a lot of work from the FA. So I'm still working. Well, not at the moment because nobody's getting sent off. Yeah. For it. And so <laughs> once close season comes, I'll have my work permits, which is, uh, it's, you're working for the home office, but the FA have got that under licence. So I'm still working. And enjoying that, and Tim say I do radio. So I do the radio Stoke games when nobody else will go because it's sort of Southampton or Newcastle, or, which is the distance, and nobody wants to do it. So I mean, all the own games now. Since I've said, I've said previously, I know the owner of Stoke City well, Peter. So I go in the boardroom for all the own games, but their away games uh, I tend to do with the radio if they've got nobody else to do it, yeah. basically. Well, well, if you're up for it, there's a there's a big club in the northeast who need to get out of uh, the third tier. If you're interested, I think. Uh, I'm up. <laughs> I want to see Sunderland where it belongs, and Sunderland need to be in the Premier League. Sunderland is a massive football club, and anybody who thinks otherwise has never been, and never been to the area because the people are great. And the football is brilliant. Well, I mean, the, the current day. I mean, what what do you see now when when you look at Sunderland? I'm hoping. I mean, obviously, the new owners came in and they stripped it back as they they needed to to get rid of the problems they had. But they obviously haven't got the wherewithal to to spend the money. But spending money isn't always right the right way. It's spending the money in the correct manner, and and that isn't easy. So I'm hoping that they can put a run together. Next season, I can't see this season being finished. I've got to be honest, the way things are going. So it'll be next season, and hopefully the club can get back where it belongs. I mean, the championship is is not the place for Sunderland. The Premier League is the place for Sunderland Football Club. Yeah, well, let, let's hope so. And, and hopefully on the other side of this, we, we get to see you at the Stadium of Light uh, very soon. It'd be, it'd be great to see you back. On that note, it's been an absolute privilege to speak to you. Thank you very much for your time, Dennis. We really appreciate it. I've enjoyed it, Chris. Hopefully everybody who listens, not everybody's going to agree, which is, that's the beauty of the world, isn't it? Everybody's got entitled to an opinion. But yeah. uh I've enjoyed talking to you and I hope it goes well. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Dennis. Cheers, Chris. And I hope everyone else enjoyed that as much as I did and hopefully speak to you all soon. Bye for now. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style.